0: Hey guys, it's Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. And this is episode two of The Scarlet Letter. In this episode, I go over chapters 11 through 24, which is the end of the book, and also go over themes. Chapter 11, The Interior of a Heart. So we can now assume what we all probably already knew from the beginning, that Dimmesdale is Hester's baby daddy. Chillingworth plans a dark and unforgiving revenge on Dimmesdale. He stays close to him and plays mind games with him. Dimmesdale has moments of hatred and distrust for Chillingworth, but he always attributes his suffering to his sin. So he can't pinpoint why he doesn't trust Chillingworth, but he definitely doesn't. Dimmesdale's suffering causes him to be a better minister. His sermons are powerful, usually about sin. They become very popular during this time, And because of his ability to empathize with his people, he knows what it's like to hold on to sin. His people see him as heaven-sent, holy, sanctified, a savior. He wants to confess his sin, and he wants to be rid of the guilt and the burden, but he can't bring himself to do it. He stands on the pulpit multiple times, having promised himself that he won't get down until he confesses, but he doesn't fully confess. He talks about how he's a vile sinner, but he doesn't give details, which only makes his people love him more. His people are like, well, if he considers himself a sinner, then what am I? And he knows this would be the outcome when he doesn't give details. He knows that they'll think that and he obviously wants his people to worship him. This is just like his self-deception that he's going through. But he always comes back to hating himself for what he's done and not confessing and he tortures himself constantly and he just gets more and more sick. So he stays up late in the night keeping vigils, which I googled because I was like, isn't that what people do when someone dies? But basically a vigil is just staying awake and thinking and about something instead of going to sleep. So during his vigils, he begins having visions and he knows that he's going crazy, but he can still discern between what's real or earthly and what is a figment of his imagination And he sees a lot of people from his past, including his mother, who in his visions pities him. And in one of these visions, Hester and Pearl are in it. And Hester looks at him, points to the A on her chest, and then points to his chest. And he puts a lot of meaning in these visions. On 126, it says, His visions were, in one sense, the truest and most substantial things, which the poor minister dealt with now. They were a representation of his anguish, and his anguish is the only truth that continued to give him a real existence on this earth. And during one of these vigils, he has an idea. He gets up, gets dressed as if he's going to church in the middle of the night, and he leaves his house. Chapter 12, The Minister's Vigil. So Reverend Dimmesdale walks to the town center to the scaffold that Hester Prince stood on a few years earlier. He walks up the steps and stands on the scaffold and looks around. It's the middle of the night and he thinks about how there's no way anyone will find him and the only person who can see him is God, but he's still afraid and he envisions the world seeing a scarlet A on his own chest. This thought causes him immense pain and he shrieks aloud. It's almost like his body has been holding on to this for so long that it's like forcing him to get some of it out and so he screams. His scream is super loud, travels far. And after he screams, he worries that all the townspeople heard him and will come out of their homes to see what it was. But no one comes out because they either didn't hear it or they thought it was a witch because apparently shrieking witches were a common happening in the middle of the night. A few minutes later, the Reverend Mr. Wilson walks by. He had just left the deathbed of Governor Winthrop. And he passes right by Dimmesdale on the scaffold in the dark, but he doesn't see him. Dimmesdale, having escaped discovery again, begins to fantasize about what would happen if the townspeople did catch him standing on a scaffold of guilty people. And he again is overcome and lets out a burst of laughter that is answered by a child's laugh, Pearl. Dimmesdale calls to her and asks if Hester is there too. And she answers yes in surprise and tells him that she had just come from the governor's deathbed as well. She was measuring him for his, like, death robes. Dimmesdale invites them to stand on the scaffold with him, which is obviously really powerful. The three of them hold hands. Pearl is in the middle, and they stand together on the scaffold of guilt and shame. And on 131, it says, The moment he took Pearl's hand, there came what seemed a tumultuous rush of new life, other life than his own pouring like a torrent into his heart and hurrying through all his veins as if the mother and the child were communicating their vital warmth to his half torpid system. The three formed an electric chain. So Pearl asks Dimsdale if he will stand with them tomorrow at noon for all the town to see. He says he cannot but that he will stand with them another time and she pressures him again and he refuses again saying this world will not see them together but he will stand with them at the judgment day. So Hester dealt with her guilt and shame in public and Dimmesdale deals with his in private and his anguish is very strong. And at that moment, a meteor flashes across the sky, lighting up the town like it's daytime. And on page 133, it says, there stood the minister with his hand over his heart and Hester Prynne with the embroidered letter glimmering on her bosom and little Pearl herself a symbol and the connecting link between these two. So Pearl during the meteor points across the street but this is it they don't really notice her because dimsdale is looking up at the sky and the narrator tells us that it was common in that day obviously to place meaning on natural phenomenons like meteors it says anything that occurred with less regularity than the rise and set of the sun and moon was interpreted to mean something they took all of these things as signs of things to come narrator says on 133 again we doubt whether any marked event ever befell new england of which the inhabitants had not previously been warned by some spectacle of this nature so knowing all of this and knowing dimsdale's current mental state we aren't surprised to find out that dimsdale sees in the sky a giant scarlet a it may have actually been in the shape of an a but some other guilty party may have seen something totally different So back on Earth, Pearl is still pointing across the street, and you guessed it, it's creepy Roger Chillingworth staring at them. Dimmesdale looks at him with the meteor lighting his face and sees the evil in him, and he asks Hester in a low voice who Chillingworth really is. He asks for his true identity, and Hester, having swore she wouldn't tell, tells Dimmesdale that she can't say. Pearl says she knows who he is, but when she whispers to Dimmesdale, it's just gibberish. And he asks her again, but she says, I won't tell you the truth because you won't stand on the scaffold with us in the daytime. Chillingworth has now approached the scaffold. He calls to Dimsdale to come home with him. And he's like, he must have sleepwalked, slept, sleepwalked. I don't know how to say that. He assumes that he was sleepwalking. At least that's what he tells Dimsdale, but we know that that's not what Chillingworth assumes. And Dimmesdale asks how he knew he was there. Chillingworth says, he's like, I didn't know. I just came from the governor's deathbed too. I saw you guys standing there when the meteor lit up the sky. Dimmesdale feels utterly hopeless and he follows Chillingworth home. The next day, Dimmesdale gives his most powerful sermon yet. It says on 135, souls, it is said, more souls than one were brought to the truth by the efficacy of that sermon. And after the sermon, an older man comes to speak to the minister. He hands him a black glove that he knows to be the minister's because everyone knows he wears those black gloves. And he says he found the glove on the scaffold where evildoers are set up to public shame. The man says that Satan must have dropped it there to try and make Dimmesdale look guilty. Dimmesdale thanks the man, but is obviously startled because he'd almost convinced himself that last night was not real. And the man asks Dimsdale if he saw the omen in the sky last night. And on 136, it says, a great red letter in the sky, the letter A, which we interpret to stand for angel. So there really was the shape of an A in the sky. Those who saw the A said it was for the angel heaven received that night in the governor when he died. So Dimsdale was not the only person who saw the A in the sky. All right, chapter 13, another view of Hester. So Hester reflects on her meeting with Arthur Dimmesdale. She's obviously shocked at his mental and physical state and the fact that he would be standing in the middle of the night on the scaffold. She feels a sense of responsibility to him because of obviously their connection, their affair, and the fact that her ex-husband is in disguise and trying to ruin his life and also successfully doing so. So, she's feeling responsible for him. On 137, it says, Here was the iron link of mutual crime, which neither he nor she could break. Like all other ties, it brought along with it its obligations. So, it's now been seven years since Pearl's birth. Hester has made a name for herself in society, and it's not what you think. It's seven years have gone by. People have forgotten or changed their view of the A on her chest. She still wears it every day, but more and more people are beginning to change the meaning from adulterer, which was its original meaning, to able because they have seen her through the last seven years work humbly for others with nothing to gain of her own. She never sought after worldly things or privileges or even anyone's respect or decency. She never talked back to anyone who was rude to her. She gave everything she had and more in pursuit of helping everyone else but herself. On page 138, it says, Hester's nature showed itself warm and rich, a wellspring of human tenderness. Her breast with its badge of shame was but the softer pillow for the head that needed one. So people looked at the letter as a symbol of her calling in life. Helpful, kind, sympathetic, and they refused to acknowledge the original meaning of the A, adulterer, and they give it the new meaning, meaning able. She would go about town helping others, kept her head down. When she, she was greeted, she wouldn't reply, even if she was greeted friendly. And people took this as humility, though it was probably a little bit pride, a little bit humility, but they just saw it as humility. And the rulers of the community also began to see Hester in a new light, it's been seven years, the rigid rules and prejudices that they had back when Hester was convicted are breaking down slowly. And so the rulers, they're not quite as forgiving as the people, but they are changing their views. So the people, they look at her A on her chest, not as like a symbol for her sins, but as a symbol for the good deeds she's done since her sin. Many people also believed that the scarlet letter had the ability to protect Hester, much like the cross that nuns wear. They kind of looked at it in the same light. There was a story that surrounded it that an Indian man had shot an arrow at the A, and it fell to the ground harmless. So, obviously a fairy tale, but... Again, Puritan society where they believe basically anything. So Hester herself has changed immensely. She's more like a shell of a human being, a shell of what she used to be. She's empty. She's bare. On 140, it says, There seemed to be no longer anything in Hester's face for love to dwell upon. Nothing in Hester's form, though majestic and statue-like, that passion would ever dream of clasping in its embrace. Nothing in Hester's bosom to make it ever again the pillow of affection. So she's just kind of gone. she's just empty. Pearl is still a little worrisome. She's still difficult to deal with, and Hester still wonders if she's human at all. It says on one forty two the child's own nature had something wrong in it, which continually betokened that she had been born amiss, the effluence of her mother's lawless passion. So again, we're still people are still seeing Pearl as born out of sin and obviously she can't be born a normal perfect child if she's born under those circumstances, so they all look at her like she's not fully human. Hester looks at the whole system of society and a woman's place in it and she sees a lot wrong, obviously. She believes that the entire system should be torn down, modified, and started anew. On 142 it says it has to be torn down, modified, started anew before women, can be allowed to assume what seems a fair and suitable position. Hester sees that there has to be a change in order for women to be considered equal or even given a fair position in society because this is the 1640s. So this obviously goes back to the beginning chapters when the narrator, he sort of grapples with the idea that a man, Arthur Dimmesdale, can keep his secret forever while Hester is physically incapable of keeping hers, and therefore woman is punished and the man is not. And this is obviously an example of the inequality between men and women. Now back to Hester's feeling of obligation to Dimmesdale. She decides that she must confront Chillingworth and persuade him to back off, leave Dimmesdale alone, and not long after her decision, she runs into Chillingworth on the beach and she confronts him. Chapter 14, Hester and the Physician. Hester approaches Chillingworth and before she can say anything, he tells her he was just recently in a meeting with the town officials and they're considering allowing Hester to remove the scarlet letter. Hester says it's not their job to allow its removal. On 144, she says, were I worthy to be quit of it, it would fall away of its own nature. And she looks at Chillingworth's face and she sees the evil in him. He's basically evil And he's trying to cover it up, but it's not working. So he has been transformed from a man to a devil. The narrator says by devoting himself for seven years to the constant analysis of a heart full of torture and deriving his enjoyment thence. When Hester looks at Chillingworth and sees how far he's fallen and how evil he is, she feels the A on her chest burn because, again, she feels partially responsible for his demise because she was his wife and she cheated on him and she obviously didn't force him to seek this sort of revenge but she feels responsible for hurting him and putting him in a place where he would choose to do this so Hester tells him that she has to tell Dimsdale the truth about his identity she says she feels a duty towards Chillingworth but his lie the lie between them has gone too far and the duty that she feels towards Dimsdale is stronger now because she feels she's betrayed him by keeping Chillingworth's secret. She tells him that her and Dimsdale are bound together in mutual sin and she feels more duty to him because their relationship feels more real to her than a church ceremony wedding that she had with Chillingworth. And she never felt love or any sort of thing like that towards Chillingworth. So she feels more devoted and... Responsible for Dimsdale than she does for Chillingworth. And she accuses Chillingworth of harming Dimsdale. Chillingworth says that Dimsdale would have died within two years of the incident if it had not been for his help. And Hester says he would have been better off dying than dealing with Chillingworth and what he's been doing to him. And he agrees, says she's right, and that he would have been better off dying. And he tells her that he knows Dimsdale feels an evil presence pulling him down and causing him pain, but he doesn't know where it's coming from. He doesn't realize that it's his friend. And Hester is like, you've tortured him enough. It's over. Chillingworth obviously disagrees. And he says his debt increases the longer Dimmesdale stays silent about his sin. In this moment, Chillingworth sees himself terrible and evil. And he thinks back to what he used to be. And he asks Hester in a moment of nostalgia if she remembers him as he once was nine years ago when they they met and they were married. And she says, Yes, I remember you were a good man. And he calls himself a fiend, a devil. And he's like, Who made me like this? And Hester takes responsibility. She says it was her and asks why he never avenged himself on her and only avenged himself on Dimsdale. And Chillingworth says that A did the avenging for him. So Hester again says that she's going to tell Dimsdale the truth, that she has to. And she says there's no more good for any of them, including Pearl, in this life. But she has to be honest because that's all she has. And Chillingworth pities her, but he also admires her. He says on 148, for there was a quality almost majestic in the despair which she expressed. She tries to convince Chillingworth to get rid of the evil, to purge the evil out of him and become a good man once again. And she begs him to forgive her, forgive Dimmesdale, and leave the punishments to God So that he can live the rest of his days in peace. But he says there is no peace. He says that this is their fate. And that he's doing God's work punishing on God's behalf. Chapter 15, Hester and Pearl. So Hester walks away from Chillingworth thinking about how much she hates him. She thinks about how it's a sin to hate your husband. But she can't make herself feel anything but hatred for him. And she wonders how she could have ever married him. How she could have ever smiled at him. She feels that his worst sin of all was having found her vulnerable and young and convinced her that she would be happy marrying him. And the narrator says that it's not enough for a man to win a woman's hand. He must also win her heart too. Otherwise, she'll find another man, another touch, he says, that will ignite passion in her and he'll lose her forever. Hester wonders if anything good has come from the scarlet letter. She says on 151, has seven long years under the torture of the Scarlet Letter inflicted so much misery and wrought out no repentance. Anyway, she leaves Chillingworth. She goes to find Pearl, who has been playing in the tide pools and throwing rocks at birds, which seems like a serial killer tendency. When Hester finds Pearl, she's wearing a seaweed-like dress that she made to look like a mermaid, a mermaid tail, And she has a big green A on her chest that she made out of eelgrass. And it says on 152, the child contemplated this device with strange earnest, even as if the only one thing for which she had been sent into this world was to make out its hidden import. She's excited for Hester to see the A. And so Hester obviously does ask her about it. She asks Pearl if she knows what the A means. And does she know why her mother wears it? And Pearl responds, truly I do. It is for the same reason the minister keeps his hand over his heart. That's on page 153. And Hester is obviously taken aback by the child's perceptiveness. And she asks again if she knows the reason. Pearl says she doesn't know, but she asks her mother to tell her. But Hester's like, no, you're too young and you can't know yet. And she thinks about Pearl and her obsession with the scarlet letter that she's had since birth. And, obviously, this chapter shows us more the theory that Pearl is the Scarlet Letter personified. But Pearl asks her over and over again for the next few days what the A means. But Hester refuses to tell her. Chapter 16, A Forest Walk. Hester tries to find a way to meet Dimmesdale without interruption and without it being in his home or at church. Because she doesn't want anyone to know and she doesn't want to risk Chillingworth messing it up. Hester knew their meeting had to be outside somewhere. Because, on 156 it says, because the minister and she would need the whole wide world to breathe in while they talked together. She finds out that Dimmesdale went to an Indian village and will be returning that afternoon, so she goes into the forest with Pearl to wait for him. As they walk in the forest, Pearl notices that the sun doesn't shine on Hester. She says it doesn't love her and it runs away from her. But the sun loved Pearl. On 157 it says, the light lingered about the lonely child as if glad of such a playmate until her mother had drawn almost nigh enough to step into the magic circle too, and then the light would run away. So they sit down by a little brook and wait for Dimsdale. and Pearl asks her mother to tell her a story about the black man, who, again, is the devil in this story. Hester asks what she's heard about him, and Pearl said she heard from a woman in one of the homes that Hester was helping in that she told Pearl that there's a black man in the forest at night who carries a big book under his arm, And people go to sign their names in the book in their own blood. And it says on 158, and then he sets his mark on their bosoms. So this is the thing that they say that Mistress Hibbins did, that they go sign their name in the devil's book and from then on do his work. Pearl asks if her mother ever signed the book or went out to meet the black man at night. And Hester's like, have you ever noticed me gone in the middle of the night? She's like, no. But anyway, so Hester finally says on 159 she says once in my life I met the black man this scarlet letter is his mark and that's as much as she's willing to tell Pearl about the scarlet letter so they're hidden in the trees near a little brook when they hear someone approaching Hester knows it's Dimsdale and asks Pearl to go play so she can have some privacy and Pearl asks if it's the black man and if she can meet him and Hester's like no not the black man it's the reverend please go play leave us alone and Pearl, when she looks through the trees and sees him, she says, Mother, he has his hand over his heart. Is it because when the minister wrote his name in the book, the black man set his mark in that place? But why does he not wear it outside his bosom like you do? And obviously she is beginning to understand what the A could possibly mean. And again, she's like seven years old, but she's seeing, maybe not understanding, but she's seeing inequality in their situation that Hester has to wear outside and Dimmesdale gets to keep it a secret forever. Anyway, so Hester tells Pearl, stay near the brook, don't wander too far, and she goes off to play. And Hester watches as Dimmesdale gets closer. He is very feeble and, of course, clutching his chest. It says on 161, there was a listlessness in his gait as if he saw no reason for taking one step further, nor felt any desire to do so but would have been glad, could he be glad of anything, to fling himself down at the root of the nearest tree and lie there passive forevermore. So he kind of just looks like he's given up on life. Chapter 17, the pastor and his parishioner. Hester calls to Dimmesdale. When they come together, they ask each other if the other is real. It says on 162, they question one another's actual and bodily existence and even doubted their own. So Arthur Dimmesdale offered Hester his hand, and they walked into the trees and sat down on the grass together, still holding hands. Up until this moment in the book, I've called him Reverend Dimsdale or Dimsdale, but now I'm going to call him Arthur in this chapter because that's what Hester calls him. So his name is Arthur Dimsdale, Don't get confused. They make small talk for a while because so long estranged by fate and circumstances, they needed something slight and casual before they talked about real things. But after a while... Arthur asks Hester if she has found peace, and she asks the same of him, and they both know that neither of them have. Arthur says he's found nothing but despair, and Hester tells him that his people revere him, and he's done good in the world by helping them, and that that has to mean something, and he says he only finds misery in that too. He says, what can a ruined soul like mine affect towards the redemption of other souls? And he hates that people regard him as a good man of God when he's not and Hester tells him he's wrong she's like you've repented of your sin you're holy now but Arthur doesn't believe her he doesn't believe he's been been forgiven but he is grateful to be alone with Hester he says on 164 thou little knowest what a relief it is after the torment of a seven years cheat to look into an eye that recognizes me for what i am so he feels relief being with someone who knows his sin and he wonders if he had had a friend to share his sin with that he maybe wouldn't be so miserable. So Hester sees her opening to say what she needs to say. She tells him that an enemy has been living with him all this time. He stands up. He's horrified at what she's saying. And Hester can see the deep injury she's caused in Arthur's life by allowing Chillingworth to be with him even for a moment. She obviously blames herself for all of Arthur's suffering, seeing how much Chillingworth must have made him suffer. And she still loves him passionately. And she realizes that now when she looks at him and she begs for his forgiveness and reveals to him that Chillingworth is her husband. Arthur looks at her for a moment. His face is black and full of hatred. He's very mad, but it passes quickly. But he freaks out saying he should have known. He's like, I can't forgive you. You have no idea what he did to me and how much I've paid, how much pain he's caused me. And Hester is not able to bear looking at him his face any longer so she wraps her arms around him and his face is lying on her chest right on the a and for a minute he struggles to get free but she won't let him and so then they hug and Hester begs him over and over again to forgive her finally Arthur says he will forgive her he says that their sins aren't as bad as Chillingworth's sins because they didn't do what they did in an effort to deliberately hurt someone like Chillingworth has Hester agrees that what they had was real and. They felt the sacredness of it because they were in love. Hester asks if Arthur remembers. He says he does. And they sit there holding hands in silence for a while. Arthur worries that Chillingworth is going to reveal their secret. But Hester says she doesn't think he will. But Arthur has to find a way to get away from Chillingworth. And he asks Hester for help. She looks at him and it says that her spirit holds up his spirit. Because she's newly energized and he is drained and empty. But she tells him that he needs to go away into the woods or back to Europe. But Arthur feels powerless. He feels like there's no way he can leave town. He tells Hester he can't go to a new place and live life alone. Hester tells him, you won't be alone. And at the end of this chapter, it says, then all was spoken on 169. So she's like, I'll come with you. (laughs) We could be together forever. Chapter 18. A flood of sunshine. On 170, it says, Arthur Dimmesdale gazed into Hester's face with a look in which hope and joy shone out indeed, but with fear betwixt them and a kind of horror at her boldness who had spoken what he vaguely hinted at but dared not speak. Because they love each other, you guys. Doesn't this make you so sad? It's been seven years of just pure torture and now they can finally like look at each other and say that they love each other. Obviously, Hester's a badass, and that's basically what the next paragraph talks about, about how the A made her courageous and strong and stern and wild, but obviously Arthur was not any of these things because he's fearful and timid. He thinks for a while, and eventually they decide to leave together, and he cannot think of one moment of joy in the past seven years, and he feels that he's already doomed, so why not try to find joy on earth if he won't be able to have it in heaven? On 171, he says, "'Neither can I any longer live without her companionship. "'So powerful is she to sustain, so tender to soothe.'" So, once the decision is made that they will flee, the sky parts and the sun shines down on them, and Arthur wonders if what he feels is joy. He says his life is already better, and he asks why they didn't do this sooner. Hester says not to think of the past, only now, and she unclasps the A, takes it from her chest, and throws it away from her. Her disgrace is now gone. On 172, it says, Hester heaved a sigh in which the burden of shame and anguish departed from her spirit. And she takes off the, like, hat thing that she's been wearing that's covered up her hair this whole time and lets her beautiful long hair fall down. And it says that her youth and richness and beauty came back in that moment and they were flooded with light And Hester is excited, obviously, about the idea that Arthur and Pearl will get to know each other, that Pearl will get to know her father, and she calls Pearl to come back. Arthur is worried that Pearl won't like him, but Hester assures him that she will love him and he will love her. Pearl has been playing, putting flowers in her hair and on her dress, and when she hears her mother call, she walks slowly towards them because she sees the minister and she's a little bit afraid. Chapter 19, The Child at the Brookside. As they wait for Pearl to come, they talk about her. Arthur says he was worried that she looked too much like him and that people would know, but now he sees that she mostly looks like Hester. They both feel united through Pearl, and they've never felt that before. She's been the continued connection between them, and Hester tells Arthur about Pearl, how she is mischievous and elfish, but she's passionate, and Arthur says his heart has yearned to know her. So Pearl gets to the edge of the brook on the other side, but she won't cross it. She's confused because she doesn't recognize her mother with her hair down and, most importantly, without the A on her chest. And she looks at the two adults and obviously senses something between them. Hester keeps asking her to come to them, but she won't. And she points at Hester's chest, and then Hester understands. She tells Arthur that she'll have to put the A back on in order to appease Pearl, who is now throwing an insane tantrum, And Arthur is like, yeah, do whatever you have to to calm her down. And Hester gets up, puts the A back on, puts her hair back up in the cap. And Pearl happily crosses the brook, kisses her mom, and then kisses the A on her chest. So Pearl asks why the minister is there. Hester says, she's like, he loves us. And says, like, go to him. Go give him a hug. And Pearl says, you know, since you love us, will you come to town with us and walk back with us hand in hand? Hester says he can't yet, but soon they will walk hand in hand forever. But Pearl refuses to go to Arthur, and so he goes up to her, kisses her on the forehead, and she runs to the little brook to wash it off. And after that, the adults kind of let her be, and they make their plans to leave town. Chapter 20. The minister in a maze. The minister leaves the forest first, as to not cause suspicion, He looks back to make sure that what just happened wasn't a dream. And he sees the girls and is happy. And on his walk home, he feels invigorated. And on the way there, the walk was super difficult. But now he does it happily and he's like skipping and lively. Hester and Arthur's plan is to go back to Europe because they'll be more easily concealed there. And he'll have access to better health care. And there is a ship from Spain in the harbor And it's heading back to Europe in a few days to Bristol. So Hester, because of her job helping people, knows the captain. She'll get them tickets and they'll leave in four days, which Arthur's happy about because that's election day, which he has to give like a big sermon for. And so he will announce that he's stepping down from his position and then they'll leave after the celebration. On his walk home, he encounters a lot of different people and finds himself wanting to do weird and bad things Like he has the urge to teach a group of boys some swear words. He wants to announce at one point that he's not who they think he is. And he passes a few women and wants to say inappropriate things to them. And he can't figure out why. And he assumes that the devil is trying to make him do these things. And that worries him because he now looks at it like he's worried that he signed a deal with the devil when he agreed to go away and live in sin with Hester but on his walk home the last person he runs into is mistress Hibbins the governor's sister and the town witch she takes one look at him and knows he's been in the forest and tells him to invite her next time the minister says i was not in the forest to see the devil or do anything like that and obviously this worries him that she would think that it says one on 188 The wretched minister, he had made a bargain very like it. Tempted by a dream of happiness, he had yielded himself with a deliberate choice, as he had never done before, to what he knew was deadly sin, and the infectious poison of that sin had been thus rapidly diffused throughout his moral system. So basically, these temptations are coming forward in his mind because he's essentially abandoned his belief system in order to form a new life with Hester. So he no longer believes that the church he teaches can bring salvation for himself. And because he has felt no joy in the past seven years because he's been torturing himself, he's like breaking free of the mold of Puritan religion and saying, there's a chance for me to be happy outside of this and I'm going to take it. So it's like all of these years of being repressed, he's like, I'm going to teach these boys to swear. I'm going to say all these inappropriate things because he's never done anything like that before. Or at least that's how I interpret this. Obviously, it's murky waters here. But one of the people he is tempted to say something to on his walk home is a girl who has just recently joined the church. And the language in the book suggests that he used <laughs> that he used the fact that she was attracted to him in order to get her to come to church and like become a member of the church which is obviously not very ministerly like but that's I mean he is handsome there are a lot of girls after him so the book suggests that he maybe was using that to get women to come to the church anyway he gets home enters his room sees all of the sacred works bible everything on his desk and he sees the sermon that he already wrote for election day but he was a different man then when he wrote it so he plans to write a new one and Chillingworth knocks on the door, greets him. Dimsdale obviously doesn't say what he knows, but Chillingworth suspects that he does know who he is for real. Dimsdale tells him that he won't be needing any more medication, that he's feeling a lot better and that the fresh air in the forest helped him. Chillingworth tells him that he's pleased to hear that he's feeling better. And after he leaves, Dimsdale burns the sermon and begins writing a new one. He feels invigorated and he writes until morning. Chapter 21 The New England Holiday. So it's election day, and a crowd gathers in the town square to celebrate. Hester arrives with Pearl. She is once again wearing her gray robes and her scarlet letter, but this is her last day. The ship leaves to Europe that afternoon, and she's excited, but she tries to hide it. Pearl asks her what this holiday is for. And Hester tells her it's to welcome a new governor. And Pearl asks if the minister will be there and if he will hold their hands today. Hester says he will be there, but he will not greet them at the ceremony, but after they will. Pearl calls him a strange man. She says on 194, In the dark nighttime he calls us to him and holds thy hand in mine, as we stood with him on the scaffold. And in the deep forest where only the old trees can hear, And the skip of the sky see it. He talks with thee, but here in the sunny day and among all people, he knows us not. Hester shushes her, tells her she doesn't understand the situation, and they move on. Hester looks around. She sees the captain of the Spanish main ship that they're going to be taking to leave to go to Europe. She sees this captain talking to Chillingworth, which is obviously concerning. The captain comes up to Hester later and says that Chillingworth told him he's part of Hester's party and will be joining them on their voyage. Hester is obviously devastated, but she hides her emotions and she looks at Chillingworth and his face, it says on 199, conveyed secret and fearful meaning. So he's like, you're not leaving. Like, I'm not letting you guys get away with this. Chapter 22, the procession. So the procession begins... It's basically a parade through the town square of all, like, the prominent people. Dimsdale is part of this procession, and his people, including Hester, notice that he is much changed. He looks healthy and more energetic than he has in years, and Pearl sees him, and she barely recognizes him, and she asks her mother, she's like, is that the same man who kissed me in the forest? And Hester is like, don't talk about that in public. We don't talk about that. But Pearl is like, if I had been confident that that was him, I would have run to him and asked him to kiss me again. But because she didn't know it was him, she didn't because she's feisty little girl. But anyway, Hester feels when she looks at the minister, she feels like he is far away from her, that he's not the same man that he was in the forest. And she's worried in this moment that she has lost him forever. Hester obviously still stands out in a crowd, mostly because people refuse to get too close to her. They kind of create, like, a circle of emptiness around her. People from other towns and some Native Americans are there, and they have never seen the legendary woman with the Scarlet A, but they've heard stories. So they're all staring at her, which obviously makes her uncomfortable. Mistress Hibbins finds her and approaches her, which... The townspeople do not appreciate because no one talks to Hester in public, but they have also started to regard her as a good woman. So the fact that the witch is talking to her is not good. So, anyway, Mistress Hibbins talks to Hester about Arthur. She seems to understand and know their connection to each other, and she tells Hester that she knows Dimmesdale was in the forest and made a deal with the devil or signed his book or whatever. She says that the minister's mark will reveal itself to everyone just like Hester's A. Pearl overhears them and asks what his mark is and Mistress Hibbins tells Pearl that her father is the Prince of Air and asks her to come fly with her to meet him someday. Soon after this, the narrator tells us it's not long until Mistress Hibbins is executed as a witch. Anyway... Obviously, this is all concerning to Hester. She doesn't really know what just happened, but she finds a place to listen to the minister's sermon. They're in like a building when he's giving the sermon, but she's outside, but she can hear him. Everyone outside can hear the minister, but she finds herself not being able to listen because her mind is too full of other things. Pearl is like wandering around and the captain of the ship finds her and tells her to deliver a message to her mom that Chillingworth has said that he will take care to bring Arthur onto the ship and Hester just needs to worry about herself and Pearl. And obviously this (laughs) makes Hester even more concerned. And after the sermon, Hester looks up and finds herself again, the focal point of a lot of people. And they're like staring at her in a circle. Chapter 23, the revelation of the Scarlet Letter. Dimmesdale finishes his sermon and everyone starts to leave the meeting house. There's sort of another procession where all the prominent people are walking again. The townspeople discuss the sermon, saying that it was the minister's best one yet, and they talk about how moved and inspired they are. But the tone in which he spoke during the sermon makes them think that something is wrong. On 2.10 it says, The sad undertone of pathos, which could not be interpreted otherwise than as the natural regret of one soon to pass away. So they took the tone of the sermon as like he's dying soon. Meanwhile, Hester and Pearl are standing near the scaffold. Dimsdale walks out of the meeting house and slowly makes his way through the procession slowly because after his sermon, he's now back into his like state of basically dying. He's like having a really hard time walking. A lot of people try to offer him assistance, but he is determined to make it on his own. He makes it to the scaffold and he calls for Hester and Pearl to come to him. Pearl runs to him and hugs him, and Hester follows, and as she gets to him, so does Roger Chillingworth, who is in an absolute frenzy because he is seeing now what Dimmesdale is probably about to do, and he knows that if Dimmesdale confesses his sin that he will lose this victim that he's been working on for so long. Chillingworth calls Dimmesdale a madman, and asks what he's doing, begs him not to, but Dimmesdale waves him off and calls to Hester again. He asks her and Pearl to join him and give him their strength so he can confess what he should have confessed seven years ago. People surround the scaffold. They're freaking out, not understanding fully what's happening. Hester grabs Dimmesdale's arm and helps him up the steps of the scaffold. Pearl is holding his other hand, and Chillingworth follows them up on the scaffold because he can't, like remove himself from this situation and he tells dimsdale as they climb the scaffold that this is the only place he could have escaped him arthur turns to hester and says this is better than their dream of going away because now they can be free and hester supports him so that he doesn't fall over and he turns to the crowd to confess on 214 he says people of new england ye that have loved me ye that have deemed me holy behold me here the one sinner of the world At last I stand up on the spot where seven years since I should have stood here with this woman, the scarlet letter which Hester wears, ye have all shuddered at it, but there stood one in the midst of you at whose brand of sin and infamy ye have not shuddered. And he continues on to say that God and angels knew this brand and the devil knew it too. He calls himself a devil, saying that he hid it from them well, but now he must reveal it all, and he pulls back the shirt on his chest to reveal the mark over his heart and the narrator says that the mark is too irreverent to describe but there is something there that people see and know to be the proof of his sin and with that motion he sinks against Hester no longer able to stand Chillingworth repeats in anger over and over again thou has escaped me and Dimmesdale tells him that he too has sinned and says may God forgive you dimsdale calls to pearl who is smiling sweetly at him and asks if she will kiss him now she kisses him on the lips and the narrator says a spell was broken whatever the child may have been before all her naughty devilish elfish traits they were sort of gone and she cried for her father then arthur addresses hester his one love she asks if they'll ever meet in the next life and arthur tells her that is for god to decide and he says farewell and he dies chapter 24 conclusion many stories and theories circulate following this intense scene most people said that they saw a scarlet a on dimsdale's chest just like hester's a few theories of how it got there were one that dimsdale branded himself as a form of torture another is that chillingworth poisoned him and whatever he poisoned him with resulted in that mark on his chest and another was that god put the mark there a small group of people who happened to be Dimmesdale's close friends and the prominent people in town said that there was not a mark on his chest at all. And they also said that it was all a misunderstanding and that he had not confessed to anything. They said on 218, he made the manner of his death a parable in order to impress on his admirers the mighty and mournful lesson that in the view of infinite purity, we are sinners all alike. So they're kind of trying to save face, it seems like. Like, nope, he did nothing wrong. He was just dying as a parable. Okay, Chillingworth wastes away. He dies within a year. On 218, it says this unhappy man had made the very principle of his life to consist in the pursuit and systematic exercise of revenge. And it came back to kill him in the end. The narrator brings up hatred versus love. You know how people always say that hate is not the opposite of love. They say that indifference is the opposite of love. So this is sort of what the narrator is arguing. He says on 219, It is a curious subject of observation and inquiry whether hatred and love be not the same thing at bottom. Each in its utmost development supposes a high degree of intimacy and heart knowledge. Philosophically considered, the two passions seem essentially the same, except that one happens to be seen in a celestial radiance and the other in a dusky and lurid glow. So he's saying basically that hate and love are the same when you get down to the bottom of it. And we'll talk more about that when we get to themes. So Chillingworth dies. And when he dies, he leaves his fortune to Pearl, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. I guess I just realized, like, that's not his daughter. Anyway, he leaves his fortune to Pearl. And she, in that moment, becomes the wealthiest girl in the new world. And after his death... She and Hester disappear. They go back to Europe to live their lives. And the story of the Scarlet Letter turns into a legend. And because of that, the town keeps the scaffold. And they keep Hester's cottage by the sea as a sort of memorial. And years and years later, Hester is an old woman. She returns to the cottage in New England. She is still wearing the gray robe and the Scarlet Letter on her chest. And she resumes life there. No one knows for sure what happened to Pearl. But Hester... When she's living in New England, she receives many letters and extravagant packages that could only be sent by someone with a lot of money and a lot of love for Hester. At one point, they see Hester sewing extravagant baby clothes that are way too beautiful for Puritan children to wear, so they assume that Pearl is alive, living in Europe, married with children. Hester had decided to come back to her home where the sin had taken place. I think it's because she wanted to come home and die in the same place that her lover died. She still wears the A, but the stigma is gone. She is very revered in the community. People come to her for counsel, especially women who find themselves in troubling situations, and she advises them, and she tells women that someday in the future there will be a world where the relationship between men and women is more equal and formed on the idea of mutual happiness. So basically she's saying... Marriages won't be just for a man to decide, I want to marry her. We're going to get married. Like it will be born out of the idea of mutual happiness. When Hester dies, she is buried near Arthur, Dimsdale, the reverend. She's buried near Arthur in the King's Chapel graveyard, but not too close because it says on 221, the dust of the two sleepers had no right to mingle even in death. They're buried near each other, but not too close, but they do share a headstone which is just a scarlet A on a black stone. And that's the end of the book. I hope you guys liked it. It's so fun. I did not expect it to be as interesting as it was, so it's fun. Anyway, now I'm going to go over themes. So the first theme I'm going to talk about is shame and guilt. So this is something that I have thought a lot about as far as the difference between shame and guilt, because they are not the same thing. There's a lot of differences, but the difference that I want to talk about is that shame is sort of an outward feeling. It's something that people can, you know, that people can shame you. You can shame yourself, but it's an outward feeling, whereas guilt is inside. It's something maybe you have never confessed like Arthur, or it's it's mostly something when you feel guilt, it's because you've done something that maybe no one has no one knows about or you're holding it inside so shame is what hester deals with throughout the novel she's obviously publicly shamed by others she carries her shame on her chest because she takes responsibility for her actions but she blames herself and she shames herself but she's not holding on to the guilt inside because she's confessed it but she's also shameful of how she appears to others so there's a lot of shame on her end. And guilt is what Arthur deals with throughout the novel because he holds on to what he's done. He doesn't tell anyone his sin. He feels guilty not only of his sin, but of the fact that he won't confess his sin and that he's left Hester alone to deal with the public shame. So that's sort of what I see in the difference between guilt and shame. They're very similar, but there are differences, and that's something I find interesting in the novel. So another theme is social stigmas. Obviously, The Scarlet Letter is a manifestation of Hester's sin and shame. She could have left the town to take off the A, but she chose to stay and bear her shame and solitude as a form of punishment for her sin. But in the end, the stigma of the A has worn off. It's also interesting throughout the novel when people from out of town see the A, they assume she's someone important or prominent because they don't know what it means. So it's just... A symbol of her shame, but the stigma wears off eventually. Okay, another theme is female independence. So obviously the story takes place in a time when women are severely oppressed. Hawthorne talks a lot about the difference between Hester and Arthur and how their sin affected them and how the world saw them through the eyes of the sin. Hester is obviously physically incapable of hiding her sin. We've talked about this while Arthur goes his entire life hiding it. And in fact, the community rulers don't even really care about who the father is. They tried once in the beginning to find out and then they never care about it again because this sort of sin is on the woman. So there's also multiple places in the novel that talk about the role of women in the society in the end we talked about how Hester tells women she hopes that someday marriage and love will be born out of a desire for mutual happiness and not just what a man wants. And throughout the novel, obviously, it's known that Pearl is wild. She's unafraid. She's assertive. She's all of these strong qualities. And this is concerning for her future because people look at her and they say those are not characteristics of a good woman because a good woman is gentle and subdued and follows the rules, and that's not Pearl. So half of the reason people are so concerned about Pearl is because she's a girl who will someday grow into a woman, and those qualities that she has are not womanly for the time, and so they are concerned that she will be hard to manage (laughs) because she's a hard-to-manage girl, she'll be a hard-to-manage woman, and she won't be what they idealized women were at that time. Okay, last theme I'm going to talk about is the nature of evil and sin. So this is a brand new Puritan colony. They know sin, death, and evil are inevitable and that's why they make a prison in the cemetery right away like we talked about in the beginning. Puritan doctrine believes that all people are born sinners because of the fall of Adam and Eve, which is the original sin, which is why they baptize children right when they're born. Another Puritan belief is that sin transgressions should be sought out and exposed and that people should be publicly punished for their sins. The Puritan townspeople use people in instances like Hester to prove that they are superior to them and more godlike. We talked in the last chapter about hate and love. Being basically the same thing when you get to the bottom of it it sort of brings up the question is love and hate what brings out the evil in us because love can definitely bring out evil in us and so can hate so again they're just the same when you get down to the bottom of it and in my opinion you can't really hate someone truly hate someone unless you loved them once throughout the novel Hester questions the belief system of the Puritans which obviously Arthur does in the end as well. Um, Hester sees the world differently through her scarlet letter, and she begins to understand that God works differently than her neighbors and people who have shunned her and shamed her believe. And she starts believing that earthly sins can be forgiven and paid for, and sinners can still get to heaven. So she and Arthur both in the end sort of throw out the Puritan belief system and start believing in other forms of religion and God and that there's hope for them after all because how can you, I don't know how you can believe in something that doesn't provide any hope for you in the end. So anyway, that's the end. All right, so go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Leave a review if you want, but only if it's good. And I will see you for the next book.